Trade Journal presents. I'll start by noting that ASHRAE again has a unique opportunity to get involved with the built environment in space to not necessarily reinvent itself, but continue its mission and envision a healthy, sustainable built environment for all. It doesn't have to be limited to this planet. It can extend beyond the boundaries of this planet. And ASHRAE has an incredible waypoint to extend its mission and vision and to really hone in on sustainability on extraterrestrial bodies and elsewhere. Welcome to the second season of the Ashray Journal podcast. As billionaires race to space, researchers and engineers are working to create built environments in the final frontier. To kick off Ashray Journal podcast's second season, John Constantinidi and Hamid Najafi discuss how HVAC and our technologies used on Earth can be applied to extraterrestrial indoor environments, as well as opportunities ASHRAE has to help shape the built environment in space. Almost two years ago, Konstantinidi and Najafi co-authored an ASHRAE Journal article about environmental controls in space. Download that article at ashrae.org slash podcast slash space. Hi, I'm John Constantinidi. I'm a Florida licensed mechanical engineer out of Merritt Island, Florida. I have extensive experience with design and design build projects for the United States Eastern Range servicing the National Space Mission. And I look forward to talking about the present state and future of environmental control systems in space. It's a very unique topic that we have, and I co-authored it here with Dr. Hamidreza Najafi from the Florida Institute of Technology. All right. Uh, my name is Hamid Najafi. I'm an associate professor of mechanical engineering at Florida Institute of Technology. Uh, I do research and teach courses in the areas of energy, building energy, and thermal sciences in general. Uh, I'm a member of the ASHRAE. I'm also serving as the Florida Tech ASHRAE student branch advisor. I'm looking forward to this uh, podcast. Very excited to be here with John and all of you and uh, ready to begin. So as Dr. Najafi knows, I, he and I do PowerPoint presentations on the ASHRAE Journal article. So I always start out uh, with the typical space, the final frontier. What is it going to look like? How will space infrastructure look? We have to understand how space and the built environment in the future is going to look because that is the next medium for business opportunities, advancements in technologies, and exploration for inhabiting planets, moons, and areas outside of our planet. So when we look at deep space, we think of waypoint stations, planetary orbits, transport vessels, and other structures on other planets. But what standards are going to be used in space? What can be adapted from industry today? And what needs to be created? So I think all of that is incredibly important to look at when we talk about space regulation and the built environment in space. And ASHRAE has an opportunity to propose standards, guidelines, and codes relating to the indoor environment of extraterrestrial transport vessels, waypoint stations, and facilities. 
Dr. Najafi has uh, provided a lot of information in the Ashri Journal article about the International Space Station. What do you think, Dr. Najafi, stands out to you in regards to uh, what we reported in the article and what maybe we could carry on in the future or what needs to further develop? All right. Thank you, John. Um, Yes, I think, uh, first of all, let me start with this, that when we talk about International Space Station, this is an excellent example of a living environment uh, in an outer space, basically. It's uh, basically uh, located at an altitude of about 248 miles, and uh, it's about 357 feet end-to-end. Typically, there are up to six crew members working in that environment, and it makes it basically a built environment outer space. Uh, and uh, that's creating this pretty unique situation to see the importance of, um, I would say, HVAC systems and IAQ, uh, indoor air quality, and in general, indoor environmental quality. When it comes to outer space applications, it's not really the matter of comfort or just, you know, health. It's the matter of survival. And I think that's what makes uh, outer space HVAC systems a pretty unique topic to discuss. So it's not just about designing an HVAC system to keep people or keep the crew members, the uh, astronauts comfortable. It's to basically survive them from the harsh environment that uh, exists out there. Uh, so the topic is uh, very broad, and we can delve into it with, uh, with more details, of course. Uh, but I just wanted to talk about the, the importance and the critical need for uh, IEQ and HVAC systems for outer space applications. And the excellent example that will uh, basically ISS would uh, set for us as a pretty unique structure, built environment, basically in the orbit. So it's a great point you bring up, Dr. Najafi, because when you look at design considerations of the built environment in planetary orbit or deep space, oftentimes you don't have an atmosphere you're encountering. Your exterior gas composition around the facility are trace gases dominated by solar winds of radiation and particulate dust and water. And that particulate dust and water is significant. It actually drives the need for resilient equipment that can endure the elements of space. And because there's no atmosphere, the harsh radiation and the solar winds, anything that travels through space, travels uninhibited. Therefore, you need to have equipment that can take on that type of, if you will, wear and tear in space. And it's not the typical wear and tear that you see on Earth with hurricanes or windstorms or tornadoes. Uh, It's uh, of a higher magnitude, I believe. And at the same time, you still need to have that heat transfer, that maximized system energy efficiency. And a lot of closed loop systems, as we will discuss, are present in the International Space Station because parts of the space station that use heat can transfer that heat or expel heat, can transfer that heat elsewhere, expel it, or even bring in more heat. And you also have technology that generates heat, uh, such as the instrumentation that's on the space station. So there's several elements and facets to look at that are starkly different from Earth, and that needs to be considered. Absolutely. That's an excellent point. Uh, When you think about creating a living environment for humans, 
there are several aspects to be addressed. And specifically in the case of ISS, when you think about it, there's the aspect of having clean air, comfortable temperature and humidity level, having access to clean uh, water, uh, healthy food, handling the wastes, hygiene, etc., etc. So you're looking into an array of aspects that must be addressed properly in order to provide this uh, living environment in the harsh uh, outer space uh, environment. This this becomes pretty challenging to address, specifically talking about, for example, maintaining a comfortable temperature environment for the astronauts inside of the cabin. Thinking about the extreme temperatures that the ISS structure experiences, and we discussed that briefly in the paper, we look into the two sides of the ISS at any time, the sun-facing side and the basically shaded uh, side, the shadowed side, you're looking at a temperature difference uh, around 500 degree Fahrenheit, so about 250 plus 250, negative 250 from both sides, which is extraordinary. In order to handle that scenario and, and provide a proper thermal management for ISS to make it a livable environment for the astronauts, very complex thermal management system has been designed and implemented in the, uh, for ISS. Looking into the uh, passive systems and the active system, passive system, specifically the MLI, the multi-layer insulation system that is attached to the uh, surface, the entire surface of the ISS with the exception of the windows. Uh, and that multi-layer structure almost blocks 100% heat flux that is uh, incident on the surface of the uh, ISS. You know, when, when you think about that, you would say, okay, maybe that solves the problem. But then as you mentioned, there are heat sources inside of the ISS, like the human body generates some metabolic heat. Uh, the electronics on board are generating some heat. So as a matter of fact, sometimes it's not the problem of providing heating, it's providing cooling for the crews uh, who, who live and, and work inside ISS. And that becomes, uh, again, a very interesting HVAC problem. And that's a problem that I uh, explain uh, when I teach HVAC here uh, in my class, because students find it very interesting uh, how different the system is from uh, an on-Earth HVAC system. The fact that instead of using a condenser that we use on a typical heat pump unit here on Earth, uh, the, of course, that works based on the convection heat transfer. That's one of the three modes of heat transfer. Uh, but uh, with the vacuum environment uh, in the outer space, uh, that's not an option. So the only mode of heat transfer that can facilitate this process of heat rejection would be uh, radiation. That's why there are these... 14 very large uh, radiator panels attached to the ISS that uh, essentially serve as a condenser uh, to radiate the excess heat to the surrounding from the ammonia to the surrounding and create this nice basically loop of refrigeration cycle. So it's uh, fascinating, very detailed design and lots of, again, uh, challenges to be addressed. Now, thermal comfort and uh, temperature control you know, is only one aspect. Like I said, you can talk about the the water recovery system, we can talk about the uh, airflow, the challenges associated with that, the fact that it's zero G, so the uh, natural air circulation that we get for Earth applications does not exist there. That by itself would be an interesting challenge and, and so on and so forth. So lots of very interesting aspects that must be addressed and has been addressed related to ISS as a, again, a living example of HVAC in a space application. And furthermore, looking at environmental control, as you mentioned, Dr. Najafi, it, it's about survival, not necessarily just about comfort. So in a typical HVAC setting, we look at heat and cooling loads. However, there's also the issue of carbon dioxide removal, 
and nitrogen and oxygen control, and also non-HVAC-related items that do impact HVAC, such as water processing and waste management. There's even urine recovery. Uh, There's actually a quote that I believe astronaut Douglas Wheelock said, as you uh, informed me, yesterday's coffee is tomorrow's coffee. And (laughs) that's because literally you have to reuse every resource that's available. And it might sound disgusting at first, but, you know, as you live through the realities of space, it's kind of like living in the realities of any harsh environment. One has to understand that it's not about availability of resources or the luxury of having resources, but about sustaining and having a net zero cycle all around. Uh, And that's why we have the closed loop, because anything you release, whether it's heat or water or waste into space or the environment, that's gone. It is not coming back. You cannot open the door and get it out and get it back in or whatever. Forget doors. You're just going to get sucked out and you'll go uh, somewhere far or near or wherever vacuum wants to take you. Uh, yeah, lots of lots of interesting aspects, uh, specifically about the water. Uh, as you mentioned, the astronaut urine is being uh, recovered. Uh, the cabin humidity is being recovered. <laughs> you mentioned it might be disgusting, but uh, it's necessary disgusting. So it's, uh, it's an absolute need. It's not really uh, um, uh, optional. The necessity becomes uh, a drive for the researchers and engineers and, and scientists to develop these new technologies. Uh, when you think about, and I, uh, again, this brings me to this idea that uh, when you look into the history of a space program in the United States and, and other countries, many of the technological innovations are rooted in a space program and are kind of a spin-off of the space program. Uh, I think NASA published more than 2,000 the list of more than 2,000 technologies, products, that are kind of considered a spin-off of the uh, space program. Um, and, uh, you know, the many of the technologies that we do have now are uh, considered a spin-off or, or inspired by the space program. And I think uh, HVAC is no exception. When you design HVAC systems or, in general, environmental control and life support system, basically components, these could become... Uh, uh, drive motivations to develop more uh, maybe technologies that are also applicable and useful on Earth application. And that's a great point you make is that application from space to Earth and how you, you take it from more of an air quality level to more of a chemical level where you're looking at hydrogen, nitrogen, and oxygen. And it's about finding appropriate chemical compositions to harvest certain fuels, certain resources. And this actually may inform several discussions that we're having in the built environment about sustainability, decarbonization. One question that may be asked about decarbonization is if you're going to decarbonize, where's that carbon going to go? Can that carbon be used for energy purposes or recaptured? Can there be a closed loop where the carbon doesn't get released into the atmosphere or get released anywhere, but stays in a constant cycle similar to the refrigeration cycle? We're not releasing refrigerant into the atmosphere. We reuse the same refrigerant in a closed loop. Why can't we do that with others? And may may say, well, we use CO2 as a natural refrigerant. Okay, and that's a start. 
why don't we look at other closed loops or other zero energy, zero water, zero waste processes that are in space and translate them to Earth? Is there a higher cost? Perhaps. But if someone is going to own a building or facility or a site and maintain it, and there's no intent on selling it to a different owner, or perhaps there's a higher price or there's value associated with a system, then there's payback seen and there's value uh, to that system. I believe that should have some bearing on Earth-based conversations that are going on with sustainability and the built environment, especially in regards to waste management and reuse of water. Water is such a precious resource that we have, and yet many people would prefer to have water from the aquifer, bottled water in the supermarket. And those technologies that we've seen on the ISS, you could look at its predecessors to previous space programs and other technologies as well. Spacesuits, for example, are a microcosm of the ISS. Imagine having a whole indoor environment or a controlled environment just for one person and blocking that radiation, regulating that 500 degree Fahrenheit temperature delta on the sun side and the shade side, just on one person. I I could only imagine my face getting seared by the sun and then the back of my head forming ice. That would be quite an experience, but thankfully the spacesuit will handle that, not me. But yes, that and just the resilience of previous astronauts and previous programs and How interestingly enough, a lot of what we had from the 1960s is reused again because there are basic principles of engineering that are carried on and they're just revised further and further. But there has to come a breakthrough point. Now, as you mentioned, that breakthrough point comes when we're able to sustain on another planet. And I think that's where industry needs to step up. Industry has done quite a bit already in launching and testing, recovering first stages of rockets, trying to make launch more affordable. But now we have to do more than transport. Transport's the first step. The second step is establishment. And then the third step is continuation or sustainability, and then growth after that. So having engineers address those third and fourth phases, and even the second phase as well, because transport uh, is important. Having a crew that lives from Earth to Moon, and more importantly, from Earth to Mars, that's a much longer journey, uh, is important. So how do we store food properly, even dried food? How do we have comfortable and livable environments? How many redundant systems do we have? Do we have a 2N or 3N or 4N redundant system because everything is mission critical in space or most things are mission critical in space. It's not selective and emergency power goes everywhere. It doesn't go to certain items or perhaps it may go to specific items and there are levels of emergency power, if you will, based on what is deemed more critical and less critical. And that engineers have to consider because what they're designing is going to affect lives. It's not just public safety and people's lives and buildings as it is here on earth. And we have life safety codes where people can escape out of buildings. 
Life safety in space is very different. There's nowhere to escape, perhaps maybe an escape pod, but then where does that go? And how long is that going to sustain the people who escape? It becomes a revolving question. How do people move on and survive? Refrigerants and refrigerant cycles are something that I think industries should be addressing in regards to sustainable technologies, machinery resilience, especially with recent anti-satellite demonstrations that have been done in orbits. If they're going to be done here, they'll likely be done elsewhere. There's going to be hostilities happening, and then there will be innocent parties in between and astronauts and those traveling will be in the midst of that hostility. So how can we be able to move through that? And air treatment and revitalization, I think the pandemic has informed us a lot about how to revitalize air, especially to not have HVAC reentrainment of COVID. So then COVID is taken and then redistributed. What if you have a pandemic on a planet of 5,000 people? I think that's going to be a much bigger deal than the billions and billions we have here on earth. We, we have a buffer, if you will, where you have healthy people and people who are not so healthy. And that creates a epidemiological dynamic that you can't really replicate with a 5,000 population crew or colony. Just looking at those technologies, and there are many more, but definitely worth thinking about. And ASHRAE has a role in all of those. Absolutely. Um, thinking about, again, uh, to, to your point, uh, the role of ASHRAE and steps to be taken and uh, how it's relate, how space and HVAC are related to one another. And that's a question that we often get when you talk about HVAC in a space. Uh, people may just you know, raise an eyebrow and, and ask, OK, how, how they're relevant if they're not uh, maybe familiar with the, with the background of this topic. But we are especially now living in a very exciting era as the space exploration is receiving a lot of attentions. You know, thinking about the growth of the private sector in the space industry over the past 10, 20 years, the space tourism, which has just become a reality. Uh, and again, all the NASA plans, uh, very aggressive plans for going back to the moon and going to the Mars. This starts to get more traction that, okay, if we want to send people to the other planets, if we want to think about more manned uh, missions, we need to think more seriously about HVAC systems, indoor environmental quality for outer space conditions. And ASHRAE is certainly at the center of uh, HVAC design standards and so on and so forth. So definitely ASHRAE can uh, at least consider to look into this subject matter. Another thing that I want to uh, point out here is if you talk to, as an, I'm, a, I'm a professor, as an educator, or when you talk to a students, engineering students, nine out of 10 would be very excited about uh, space, anything about a space. When you're talking about a spacecraft, thermal management of a spacecraft, talking about the, uh, you know, re-entry vehicle, anything space-related uh, brings inherently this excitement to, to uh, you know, a lot of people, including engineering students. And I think here's an opportunity to connect between these two topics. It's absolutely a, a very important need. But it's also, I think, an opportunity to get these two topics closer to each other, try to talk both languages between, uh, you know, aerospace industry, the needs for the future, again, related to uh, living in a different planets or establishing similar structures to ISS and so on and so forth, and the HVAC needs. Because if you talk to many students and ask them, okay, what do you think an HVAC course is about? 
uh, they probably think about very, let's say, conventional things like, okay, here's you're probably going to cover refrigeration cycle, probably co- going to cover basically essential elements of heating, ventilation, air conditioning system. Uh, they don't expect you to talk about uh, International Space Station. They don't expect you to talk about uh, cooling load calculation on the surface of the Mars or heating load calculation really on the surface of the Mars. They don't expect that. When you talk about these topics, when you bring this up, there's this aha moment that, you know, captures a student's attention, make them to start thinking about this. And I think that's a way to encourage students uh, to develop more interest towards the subject of HVAC or towards the subject of sustainability and a sustainable built environment of the future, which, again, benefits the life on Earth, also certainly benefits the, uh, the futuristic life on the surface of other planets. Thanks for listening to the Ashry Journal podcast. We want your ideas. What topics do you want to hear about? And who do you want to hear it from? Email us your ideas at podcast at ashray.org. That is podcast at A-S-H-R-A-E dot org. Let's get back to the episode. It comes into question many times. When does proprietary or private research become exclusive research? And many times you look at rockets and payloads and such, and that technology is specific to the company. It's proprietary to the company, which makes sense because they use it for launching commercial payloads, government payloads for a profit at the end of the day. That's how the company sustains its operations. And rightfully so, it needs to be able to pay employees, pay for space insurance, which also exists, interestingly enough. And it asks the question, where can we have or where does regulations fit in? Where does the public domain fit in with space technologies? Where do ASHRAE standards fit in with as part of that regulation? I think space regulation right now is minimal when it comes to companies and corporations. Most of that regulation is on nations because at the time the UN Space Treaty was conceived, nations were spacefaring, not companies. But nowadays, companies are more so spacefaring. And even nations are giving deference to companies to say, go here, we'll subsidize maybe some of the infrastructure so then you can continue it and uh, go into space and explore. I think maybe because nations know companies have this latitude to be able to go and explore without much, if any, restriction. What is a country going to do to a company that uh, is going to exploit an asteroid or exploit the resources of the moon? Are they going to get fined? Are they Oh, what if they set up a company out on the moon and it's not affiliated any longer with the original company or loosely affiliated and there's a colony on the moon? What are you going to do? Find the people on the moon and have them ship back the money? It it comes to a point where we have to ask ourselves, where do we draw lines? Where do we draw boundaries? And I think ASHRAE is a very big part of that, or it's a great venue to start talking about that especially when it comes to HVAC technologies, mechanical technologies, having chemicals and refrigerants and uh, equipment. Uh, You don't want to have HVAC equipment 
start becoming part of that space junk besides satellites that are unused floating around in space because that impacts equipment and waypoint stations. Imagine having a piece of HVAC equipment go on a transport vessel. Many people wonder, well, how is that like? And I was thinking about this morning and wondering, well, maybe if you take a small demolition ball and just swing it right into your building right there on earth, depending on how large you want that floating piece of equipment to be and how fast it's being flung, that could be the, uh, if you will, the analogy that is used for earth-type buildings. So people obviously don't want swinging wrecking balls at their buildings on Earth. Why would we want to have space junk run into space stations, waypoint stations, even land on planets where there is no atmosphere? There there is no burn-up on the moon. They just land and fall and boom, there it goes. So how do you avoid all that? And I think ASHRAE can provide a lot of precautions. We do have a code of ethics. Perhaps maybe that could be extended to the application of how technology is applied as well and what engineers need to follow in order to maintain that level of professionalism and also extend that net of safety so that we are cognizant of life safety, not in the conventional sense where people escape a situation because that can't be done in space, but situations are prevented. There's more proactive uh, measures taken as opposed to reactive measures. Absolutely. These are great points that uh, you made, John. Uh, I think there's certainly a a big demand requirement for uh, developing some regulations and uh, some standards related to HVAC in space. And the first step in establishing these space-related HVAC applications, I would say, probably thinking about the problems ahead of us. And you made great points. You brought up several very interesting challenges. Uh, I think the first step is recognizing and identifying those issues and then try to see if those issues can be categorized. For example, you mentioned the management of the refrigerant or uh, the waste product uh, from from HVAC equipment and so on and so forth. Um, Each of these, I think, uh, recognizing these issues, understanding them, and then the next step would be trying to come up with solutions. And I think these could be part of a series of regulations, standards to address the problem. We are still, I mean, when you when you look at it, uh, we are still at early stages of the awareness regarding this matter. Because when uh, you and I, when you when we did write that uh, ASHRAE journal article, uh, we spent a lot of time trying to collect information, if you recall, uh, that are published from different, basically, researchers, different uh, organizations, institutions, and so on and so forth. Um, there are a lot of good resources, but you can see that not, uh, you know, not very many details are, are shared about uh, many of those basically subject matters. And that makes it hard to uh, even identify those issues. So we, we spend a lot of time discussing some of these. We spend a lot of time collecting information and discussing the topic. But uh, given the emerging uh, nature of this subject matter and given the proprietary nature of this subject matter, it is still challenging to 
collect enough information about it and create this, let's say, set of data, kind of a database that allows, let's say, an organization like Ashtray to start developing, establishing standards around it. So I think it takes uh, it takes us uh, some background research, some let's say ideation, some discussions with uh, uh, of course experts from different uh, with different perspectives to understand the issues first, establishing an understanding of okay, what are the issues that we are trying to address, and then maybe categorize those, and then maybe through task groups or something basically mechanism like that, uh, try to address each issue in a in a uh, proper fashion. Agreed. And I think having those professionals and engineers consider the scenarios and the possibilities, be creative in what could be out there and anticipate what's out there is important. Space tourism, for example, uh, is creating, I guess, more possibilities of what people can do should they have the resources to do it. And then it extends beyond the conversation that I mentioned about companies to individuals. What if individuals go out to space and start building their homes on asteroids and rocks and they can maneuver their asteroids or maneuver their ships and uh, they do it in a way where it's their property and they have the right to do what they want with their property. But is it going to be at the cost of others? that may be around them. And we're not talking about just one acre piece of land on a large planet. We're talking about rocks that can create a catastrophe on satellite moons or uh, that can land in planets without atmospheres or that can crash into stations and such. So when one talks about property and some I guess, smaller planet or orbiting planet or somewhere there, there has to definitely be boundaries. And I guess it ultimately boils down to creating an atmosphere and a sense of responsibility, not just among engineers designing, but amongst the operators, amongst the owners, amongst the stakeholders involved. And many times when space systems are created, there's so much complexity, it's as if people just throw up their hands and say, if it breaks, it breaks, or I don't know how it works. And I, I think this may be a call to where we have to look at also the systems that we have and make them more user-friendly. I know going back to Earth now, we have a lot of those issues with building controls, where more complex building controls become unmanageable, and then building operators just shut down the building controls and create their own parameters for HVAC systems because that's easy. It's simple as opposed to understanding the building controls and being trained and using the building controls to their advantage to increase the performance of a building. And perhaps that education needs to be provided to those who want to occupy other planets or other extraterrestrial bodies and take the time to know the technologies and use the technologies instead of saying, I'm just going to go out and live my life out there like I live my life here. And that's not possible. So a gravitas, if you will, on the responsibility, not just perhaps the adventure and the luxury of living in space is uh, very important. And it's sobering as well. 
because then it makes people think, is it worth for me to go to Mars and stay out there? How much do I have to learn? I have to reorient everything I learned since I was born and rethink everything and perhaps maybe focus on a niche, allow others to work on other areas. This, this is perhaps the greatest opportunity for engineers in different disciplines to finally work with each other instead of stay in their own silos. So many society presidents have talked about breaking down silos. Well, here's a great way to do it. Let's work on space projects. So that is daunting and opportunistic as well. Lots, lots ahead of us. What do you see is going to be happening in the next, I wouldn't say five years, but maybe 10 to 20 years? I know there are many planned voyages to go to Mars and Moon as well, but what, what do you think we can do, Dr. Najafi, from a practicality standpoint? Maybe form an ASHRAE Space HVAC task group or a technical committee or uh, pursue an energy code on space uh, structures or on lunar structures or what would ventilation look like in space <laughs> because there's not much ventilation out there in a vacuum. That's a very uh, exciting idea. Yes, establishing a task force, a task group, or eventually a technical committee. I think it would be a very interesting idea to uh, to look into the HVAC in the space. I think the topic is very broad, John. Uh, like I said, understanding the issues ahead of us related to thermal management, related to energy consumption, uh, trying to address the creating that full circle with zero energy, basically, uh, buildings or built environments and so on and so forth. I think uh, there are lots of issues to be addressed. Uh, what I see as kind of a interesting trend now, there are a number of interesting things happening now that I think will bring this topic uh, to a higher priority for, uh, for many people, is the fact that, of course, on the surface of the Earth, we as, as humans, we do feel now, we do see the uh, uh, environmental issues. I mean, we, uh, it's, the, it's an era now that everybody are realizing the environmental issues, more or less, and the um, challenges associated with global warming and the challenges that it's, it has brought and will, it will continue to bring, it will make Earth a less comfortable environment to live on. And it will make us, push us to become more responsible citizens and engineers, I would say. It will encourage more engineers to start thinking about uh, sustainability and how it can be addressed in their area of expertise. At the same time, so again, this is on the, on the earth. Uh, so when you look into buildings, for example, just look into the huge investments that has been made into making buildings more energy efficient over the past uh, couple of decades. And think about the, uh, all the new technologies that have been developed for zero energy buildings. I think this shows a general uh, awareness with regard to energy, with regard to the environment. Now, this is happening at the same time that the, the space program is becoming more and more aggressive towards the space tourism, towards landing uh, humans again back on moon and, 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 and later on Mars. And these will, I think, make these two topics a little bit, I guess, maybe converging, thinking about the 
more difficult situations for design of HVAC systems, for building energy systems. I think these, this kind of brings these two topics a little bit uh, uh, converging to, to one another to some extent. Of course, there are huge gaps between the two uh, environments, but again, kind of an opportunity, I think. And like I said, I, I mentioned this before, I would like to uh, emphasize on it. I think when we think about HVAC design on a uh, space application, let's say on the surface of the uh, Mars or Moon or even just ISS, the situation, the design condition is so challenging that will push the engineers, the uh, basically scientists, a lot more innovative. They don't have other choices. They have to become innovative to be able to address the, uh, the challenges. And I think uh, very much so we can benefit from these uh, uh, innovations on the surface of the Earth. Uh, and looking into that, I mean, if we appreciate that aspect of it, I don't think it is far away to think about establishing uh, a task group uh, within ASHRAE, let's say, to look into this subject matter. Uh, because, again, because it's not just about, oh, tomorrow we want to establish a, a built environment on Mars. It's about what we can learn, lessons learned from looking into some of these very critical matters. Again, I'm thinking about ISS again, think about how... Uh, this uh, system was constructed in late 1990s. I think that's when they completed the project. And thinking about the, providing a cooling, uh, a thermal management system, basically for the for ISS, uh, more than 20 years ago, it shows where the technology was again in the in the space program, uh, which was able to address those very challenging problems at the moment. So again, right now, thinking about. Uh, maybe 20 years ahead of us now. If we think about maybe uh, establishing a built environment uh, on the surface of the moon or surface of the Mars, what are those needs that has to be addressed? What are the challenges that has to be solved? I think there's definitely an opportunity to look into the subject matter. And I think it will be well received by the engineering community. I think there will be many people who would be willing to start looking into this topic, again, because it's just inherently very interesting and challenging. An ASHRAE 90.5 energy code, I think we're at 90.4 right now, or 62.3, uh, 55.2. So when we're looking at ASHRAE standards, say we're looking at energy, I guess this is a direct application from the standards we have now to the standards we could have. Energy has to be considered in Moon, Mars, and deep space, and asteroids. Let's lump asteroids into deep space and understand that one, the atmospheres are going to be different, two, the temperature differentials are going to be different, so then three, the loads and demands on the facility are going to be different. So those considerations may need to be looked at. The thought of climate zones is going to probably be massively adjusted on Moon and Mars, if not thrown out the window, especially for deep space. There's one climate zone in deep space, and that is vacuum. So when you're looking at what we do on Earth, we definitely need to tweak and adjust the energy codes. And also renewable energy is going to be the way of collecting energy unless we have incredible petroleum reserves hidden on Moon and Mars. And perhaps there is. But what benefit is it going to be to use that? And is it going to be cost prohibitive? It's not cost prohibitive on Earth because we're here already. But to send all that construction equipment to build plants and such, that's going to have to be after hundreds of years of habitation. But solar and 
perhaps using solar technologies to capture solar wind, capture solar energy uh, through multiple methods, not just through irradiance and through photovoltaic means, but through other means as well. Something to keep in mind with Mars, uh, most of the atmosphere there is made of carbon dioxide, nitrogen, and argon. How can we take atmospheric elements and harvest them to make energy? Or on the moon, you have helium-4, hydrogen-2, methane, and ammonia and carbon dioxide. That methane, or do you have methane deposits where you could maybe provide some clean sources of energy and then you could uh, reuse for heat and that way you use carbon, if you will, in a closed loop? So those are opportunities there. But for 62.1, that's going to be an interesting jump from what we have on Earth because ventilation can't be done. So if you have like a 62.3, it's not really going to look at minimum ventilation requirements. It's going to look at minimum environmental quality or air quality requirements. So looking at air treatment and revitalization or filtration, that's going to be most of what we have. And if you look at, say, what we've done in COVID era, the COVID times where we focused on filtration and outdoor air, say you remove the outdoor air component, but you look at the UVC technologies that are there, the filtration technologies, the usage of HEPA filters, that's incredibly important for what's going to be out there in space and the ability to regenerate that equipment as well, to clean the filters, clean that, because you can't throw away materials out in space, then that means they have to be replaced, which costs money to send and replace them unless you're going to replace them on site. So standards have to create a consideration of reuse of equipment and materials uh, and to minimize waste, which is sustainable in their means. A standard 55 for thermal comfort, I think, is going to be quite similar to what we have, a 55.3 out in space perhaps maybe considering different layers of clothing or different types of clothing. And then going beyond HVAC, the different standards that we have, one comes to mind, standard 211, which is for commercial building energy audits. How do you do an energy audit of the International Space Station? One interesting question someone had when I presented to the ASHRAE Central Florida chapter on the side was, what would an ASHRAE building energy quotient performance score look like on the space station? I would say. Well, I would imagine it's zero because you're not pulling any power from a power plant, right? It's all on-site regeneration or uh, renewable energy use. But how would energy audits look? And what would be your energy consumption survey, the analog to CBEX for different types of facilities out in space? So I think ASHRAE has a lot of opportunities. There's a lot of great groundwork done with the 90.1, 55, 62.1, and other similar standards. But at the same time, revisions need to be done to adapt to space. And perhaps maybe they may not be useful now. But as Dr. Najafi mentioned, this is forward looking. We need to look ahead. We need to prepare because if we don't do it now, then it'll be too late by the time we think about it because these standards take time to develop. Noting that ASHRAE, again, has a unique opportunity to get involved with the built environment in space to not necessarily reinvent itself, but 
continue its mission and envision a healthy, sustainable, built environment for all. It doesn't have to be limited to this planet. It can extend beyond the boundaries of this planet. And ASHRAE has an incredible waypoint to extend its mission and vision and to really hone in on sustainability on extraterrestrial bodies and elsewhere. What is sustainability? Is it a convenience or is it necessary? And then to bring that back to Earth to say, we perhaps need to consider sustainability to be more necessary than convenient, especially if resources are a question, cost is a question. Right now, it may be cheaper to not be sustainable, but is that always going to be the case? And when it doesn't become the case, and when we don't have a plentiful amount of resources everywhere, we have to start considering reuse of materials, reuse of equipment, recycling, recapturing such. What is that going to look like? And our work in space will prepare us for what may also come on Earth as well. And ASHRAE should be there, and ASHRAE should be ready. ASHRAE Journal Podcasting is managing editor Mary-Kate McGowan, producer and associate editor Chad Jones, assistant managing editor Jerry Alger, and associate editors Tani Polevsky and Rebecca Matasovsky. Copyright ASHRAE. Views expressed in this podcast are those of individuals only and not of ASHRAE, its sponsors, or advertisers. Please refer to ashrae.org slash podcast for the full disclaimer. 